Hi, I'm Izzy Robertsor, the Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival. We're bringing you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2017. And in the lead up, we've got a real treat for you. This brand new podcast! (laughs) Over the next few months, we'll be asking storytellers about what they do, how they do it, and why. Hear from all tomorrow's voices, right here. Stay tuned and hit subscribe. From the Emerging Writers Festival, this is Future Perfect. In this episode, we're lucky enough to be joined by Madeline Dorr, who is the creator of Extraordinary Routines. Um, Madeline is here guest hosting this episode and interviewing Gorky and Jack's Jackie Brown. Hi, Madeline. How are you doing? Hi, Izzy. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me as a guest host. So I wanted to have a little chat to you as well about Extraordinary Routines. It's an extraordinary name, but what does that actually mean? Mm, it's interesting because I've kind of become over the years more partial to saying extraordinary because I'm really finding kind of it's the mundane, ordinary parts of our daily lives that are actually the most fascinating and the most affirming to hear about other people. But the project started a few years ago um, when I'd graduated from uni and I was unemployed and couldn't find the job that I wanted to. So I started a side project as a way to keep having conversations with creative people and also build a portfolio to hopefully get work. That ended up working out quite well. I got a job as the deputy editor at Arts Hub and was there for a few years and kept on kind of interviewing people about their routines because that um, was still a really strong fascination and curiosity so it's um I've always kind of wanted to be able to peek behind closed doors and see what other people are doing and kind of check myself and see if I'm doing it right (laughs) um so yeah it's been interesting to be able to experiment with that project and and chat to so many people it's interesting I was reading something the other day about how human behavior a lot of the time is mimetic so we look at other people to check that what we're doing is the right thing Um, And I think a lot of extraordinary routines is this kind of pulling back and going, oh, that person who I look at and I really admire, they also, you know, struggle sometimes or they also drink six cups of coffee a day and that's okay. They're they're crushing it. So maybe I'm okay as well. Mm. Um, And there's, do you think that that part of that is is at the heart of it is is for people as well to read extraordinary routines and and have that sense of comparison, I guess? Absolutely. And especially the aim is definitely for it to be a comforting comparison. So that idea of stripping back the highlight reel and really kind of getting into the behind the scenes of how people live rather than the idolized perfect day of, you know, I get up and have a green smoothie. I kind of want to kick that out of the door and be like, you're actually pressing the snooze alarm 10 times, aren't you? So it's, yeah, it's good to kind of know how people really operate and then also kind of think like, well, actually I found what has worked for me and so has this person and maybe we shouldn't really be comparing so much in actual fact and more just like finding what works and knowing that everybody's kind of not really knowing what they're doing either. I think something that kind of overwhelmed me a little in looking at some of the more recent interviews that are up on the site at the moment though too uh, was realising how hardworking all of these people are as well. And that's that's 
it is comforting and it's also terrifying um, to, to some degree being like, well, you get up at six every day and then you go to bed at 11.30. Like that is not enough sleep. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's interesting because I guess there's been a real diversity. of um, There's been – I saw a real trend of people who were enjoying slow mornings, so waking up at nine um, and really kind of taking their time making porridge and coffee and just kind of like – scrolling um, the news for a little while and then eventually kind of getting into the studio or the office a little later, 10 or 11. Um, I actually remember Abdul Abdallah, he actually gets into the studio at 2pm sometimes. So that was really nice to hear. And with a lot of your interviews, you managed to get a real depth from your subjects. And I wonder, like, how do you approach that? Is it is it the time that you're able to spend with people or a particular kind of attitude that you need to take into that space? I think it's a mix. I think one thing is definitely practice. Um, and what that means is that I guess when I was starting out, I was uh, a little bit nervous to probe too deep because it's kind of personal, someone sharing their day. And I was shy to kind of challenge something or be like, oh, actually, can we talk about your real day, not your ideal day? But with experience and time, um, you, I kind of get a bit braver and bolder with asking kind of the harder questions and the intimate questions. And I think that there's... Yeah, I think the format itself, uh, a lot of people that I've interviewed have been interviewed multiple times uh, and they have their script for certain questions. But then if I sit with them for an hour and they their whole task is to talk about their day, that really takes them off script and they surprise themselves and there's these beautiful tangents because someone might speak about how you know, they find themselves on their phone before bed scrolling and then we can have a nice conversation about procrastination and distraction. And yeah, it's been nice to have those kind of leads come from the conversation. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting structure and it obviously, it stands true, you know, that you're still doing these, like having these conversations with people and routine is such an interesting opener to exactly how someone works, what motivates them and what other factors are kind of influencing what they do. And I think we're all very curious about how people do the things they do, particularly when they're they're folks we admire. Over the couple of years that you've been doing this, do you have any particular highlights or lessons that have come out of those conversations with creatives? Mm, I think it comes back to kind of what we were speaking about before about we're all looking to kind of see ourselves and feel comforted. Um, So the biggest lesson is that nobody knows what they're doing really and uh, we're all kind of having nervous cries all the time. We're all doubting ourselves. Um, that's definitely been the biggest takeaway and kind of great when it's coming from people that have, you know, been, whether it's Ken Doran who's been working for decades and decades and is now, you know, 78, um, he still needs to um, have a reminder. Like he has, he keeps this little farting gnome in his studio and so when he finishes for the day, it will fart as it as he walks out the door and it's like a reminder that, hey, like you're human and don't take yourself so ster- seriously and kind of do the work. So I like that. I like that <laughs> he still needs that reminder. I'm really glad that bodily functions from uh, <laughs> gnomes can can assist us with that uh, that learning. That's very wise. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and so today you are chatting to Sarah Nagorka, otherwise known as Gorky. And you've known Sarah for some time as as personally as well as as a cartoonist. Can you can you tell us a little about Sarah's work? Yeah, well, we actually met on Instagram because I um, stumbled across her page, which is at Gorky Gork, and just fell in love with her cartoons. They were very simple but so poignant in terms of how I was feeling, whether it you know, be kind of 
overwhelmed by fear or whatever it might be. Um, and I started kind of re reposting them on my own page because I was so relevant to the creative process and that kind of thing. And after a while, like when, because you just kind of develop a bit of rapport on Instagram and we knew that we're both in Melbourne and it was just a matter of being like, Hey, we should meet in person. And it was just so nice to kind of meet the person behind the cartoons and just see that the mind was just as interesting and fertile as her work. Um, so yeah, we became buddies <laughs> and it's just, it's yeah, really interesting. I think that her approach to work is really inspiring as well because um, she does give herself a lot of space for her creative process and projects. We often riff about kind of how to sort of determine how much money you should make as a creative or how much you should be working um, versus how much you should be kind of exploring new ideas and what's actually important, making the money, doing the work. It's Yeah, it's always really interesting to bounce off her um, and get advice like that. And it was fantastic having um, Gorky in the studio and Jack's Jackie Brown was here as well and as Gorky was speaking, Jax and I started looking up her Instagram and having a look at some of those pictures. It's really, I would encourage anyone who's listening to the podcast right now to look up Gorky Gork on Instagram, spelt G-O-R-K-I-E, not G-O-R-K-Y, Gorky Gork, uh, and have a look at those while you're listening to this interview. Thanks for coming in, Gorky. My pleasure. Uh, so it would be great to kind of start at the beginning with your satirical inspiring cartoons and if you could tell us a little bit about how that all began. Um, honestly, I can't remember where it started again, but I do remember that when I was 12 I, um, I had a comic strip called Sharp Sheep because I was an absolute dork and I lived on a farm and uh, the main characters were sheep. Surprise. Um, so I started cartooning back then, but um, more recently, probably about five years ago, I started doing little observational sketches essentially and, yeah, just went from there gradually, very gradually. Was there a point where you decided that you could share these cartoons and they weren't just sort of private doodles? Um, well, that's tricky because they were essentially public because I put them on WordPress, but when two people follow you, is that public? I don't know. <laughs> uh, about three Three years ago, a friend of mine convinced me to try and do an observational cartoon a day on Instagram because she thought it was like the perfect platform for me. And um, I was a bit worried that doing one a day would kill it for me, but quite the opposite. It sort of uh, made me have more and more ideas. But, yeah, probably about three years ago that's that's when that happened. Uh, because this is the Emerging Writers podcast, mm -hmm. Do you, is there anything kind of routine about your cartoon writing process uh, or how you kind of fit it in around these different jobs and I listen to a lot of things that tell you you should have a good routine and that you should get up at the same time every day and that kind of business but um, I'm very emotionally driven <laughs> if I feel like rubbish I really like let myself feel really bad and will be like crying on the couch and sort of like drawing at the same time be like why why do I feel like this and do other people feel like this? And of course they do. Uh, yeah, I'm really quite indulgent when it comes to emotions, which is problematic in other jobs. But um, for cartooning, it serves, quite, serves you quite well. Yeah, it's quite a nice mm. fit. And it means that you can kind of work any time. Absolutely. Uh, having some feels. Yeah, yeah, which is all the time. Is it? So it must be hard then to stop and even like take yourself to bed, for example, and just kind of that's the day done. And Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I'm 
yeah, I'm terrible at sleeping. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to stop. Yes. Mm-hmm. What does the terrible at sleeping kind of look like for you? Is it, does that mean that there's little sleep in your life or a lot? Or how, how do you kind of fit in these kind of more day-to-day necessities? Um, I wake up in the night often like, <gasps> like this about <laughs> the most mundane, stupid things. Like once I woke up and it was basically like a nightmare because I was like, <gasps> there was dust in a print I sent to someone. I was like, what a terrible dream. Like what a mundane, terrible subconscious I have. So, yeah, I just get a bit stressed out about really minor things, which is quite embarrassing, but whatever. (laughs) Is there anything that helps? Like are you a to-do list person or how do you kind of keep your ideas organised or is that just complete? Um, I don't really organise them except in uh, Google Notes. I write cartoon so that I can search for the idea again, cartoon, and then whatever the idea is, and then I just, like, debrief about whatever uh, emotional thing is going on. Mm. Yeah. That's oh, good to sort of know that behind-the-scenes process of the Google Doc and how you're kind of keeping it together. It's not even Google Doc. It's <laughs> oh, just no, Google Notes. Google Notes. Yeah. Okay. Um, for those who have, might not have seen your work on Instagram or the um, – websites and things like that um I think the best way for me to describe it would be like reading a hug if a hug was an actual cartoon or in cartoon form um there's something so comforting about your work so affirming um people can well I can definitely see myself in it but is there something is there challenges in terms of putting out such kind of raw and vulnerable work I wouldn't be doing it for so long if it didn't come quite naturally But I think one of the challenges is I do believe in the power of like your own words in that, you know, affirmations, that kind of thing. After a while, you start believing what you say or what you write down and that kind of thing. And I do worry that because my work is quite cynical and quite focused on what we see is quite negative or darker emotions, I worry that that um, will have an ongoing effect on my life and it will sink me down somehow Mm. that is a concern of mine but um in terms of challenges of making the work there really aren't that many like Mm. what I use is very simple I use really cheap materials I have them around all the time yeah and I have the privilege of having some time to just sit and wallow in emotions and work out what's going on so yeah Mm. yeah I think that's um really interesting that there is that that fear that you might fall into the darkness or create it, mm. like almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of writers who might be dealing with darker subjects, that that's a real kind of obstacle. Is there any kind of self-care, I guess, that you do to kind of keep that in check? For sure. For sure. There are certain topics I do avoid deliberately. Like everyone says, oh, your work is so vulnerable. It's so great. And it's like, hmm, there are still things I definitely keep for myself mm-hmm. to protect myself. And, yeah, the work is vulnerable, but, yeah, I think it's important to share up to a point. Um, Also, just walking. If you're ever in doubt about your mental health, go for a walk. Get some fresh air. In nature. So uh, you mentioned before that you have time and you have Mm -hmm. the luxury of time. I find that really interesting because I think a lot of writers might go into – um, or creators that you have to fill your time constantly with creating. If you're not writing, then you're not kind of producing and you're not kind of getting your name out there. And mm. there's almost this kind of hamster wheel that we feel like we need to jump onto. Mm. Um, how do you feel okay about having time and embrace spare time? 
How do I embrace it? That's a really good question. I just really see the benefit of getting clarity in your life, like however you can. And my way of doing that is to just draw out my emotions. Um, so yes, I definitely feel the pressure to like get a real job, especially uh, when people are buying houses and all this stuff, them like, okay, you have a choice. You could actually get a better paying job and do this and do more stuff. But I just really value for myself and for other people, like creating clarity around some of the emotional, like common emotional issues we have, but not in a real like academic way, but in just a really sort of hug, like I understand it is a real thing kind of way. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. If that makes sense. It does, like getting that clarity. And also there is that pressure, like as you said, like get a real job, get it, be a grown up, that kind of thing. (laughs) Totally. And it can even be more of a pressure when you feel like your creative work isn't reaping rewards or it's not getting the recognition that you want it to or you don't feel like you're successful enough or doing enough. Um, Do you have any thoughts around that kind of pressure? Yeah, I'm feeling it a lot at the moment. I've actually been pretty down lately. I think it might be because I, I turned 30 and I'm just really feeling after the high of it, it was good. Um, I'm just really feeling that like I am falling behind, so to speak, in life stages. But I just have to actively remind myself that it was a choice to go into this. Like I could go and seek out the, the mortgage and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I – not that they're um, – not that you can't make a living being a cartoonist, but um, deliberately choosing to open up space rather than make money is is a choice. Mm. If that does that make sense, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I think yeah. that's an important reminder that mm. you're either choosing to be a writer or choosing to be an artist, and there will be opportunity cost with every choice. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, can be confronting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very helpful, and. I have the luxury of having you as a friend and I can, when I'm feeling similar feelings, I can come to you, the feeling expert. (laughs) So Mm. I thought it'd be interesting if we could pretend right now that I'm having a big cry about how much I didn't do today or (laughs) beating myself (laughs) up about kind of not being where I want to be, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, And what you would say to me if I was in that situation or or any writer who's kind of I would do a very wanky thing and probably like send you one of my own cartoons (laughs) not because I think they're the top stuff it's just like I have thought about this stuff a lot so it's probably a quicker way to uh, summarize what I think (laughs) no um a, a favorite of mine that I have to think about a lot like remind myself of is I just have this little square cartoon that says doing nothing now so I can do lots later because I firmly believe that like sometimes your body is just like nope no, no, you're not doing anything today. And then the next day, like pretty much guaranteed, you'll get so much stuff done because you didn't force it the day before. So mm, Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of uh, I saw Miranda July speak last year when she was mm. in Melbourne and she used that uh, a bank metaphor that sometimes we have to put hours in the bank and that those hours of procrastination and thinking and seemingly doing nothing mm. and then we'd make a big withdrawal when we actually do the thing. Totally, um, yeah. So I love keeping that in mind. I thought it'd be nice to end on any advice that you have for an emerging cartoonist or someone who would even just like to kind of start sharing their work on Instagram or putting their thoughts down onto the page. Yeah, sure. That's that's an interesting question for an emerging cartoonist because I definitely <laughs> still see myself as that and probably always will. It's a bit cliched, but your strength is your weakness. Like, definitely. 
just I often feel too emotional for the real world, which is not true. It's just like a, a narrative I tell myself. But, um, yeah, I just sort of lent into that and tried to see what would come of that and that's where the whole observational cartooning kind of thing started and it kind of became my thing. Mm. Um, and now when people say, oh, you're overthinking it, Sarah, I say you're underthinking it. So <laughs> there. Yeah. So, yeah, your strength is your weakness and just like, oh, no, I almost said be you. That's terrible advice. I mean, be you, but anyway, strength is your weakness. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that there's our weaknesses are strengths, strengths are weaknesses. Mm. It's beautiful. You also spoke to Jack's Jackie Brown in the studio. What was it that made you decide that you, you wanted to have a chat to Jack's? I think I'm really fascinated by anyone who can be a slashy and make it work. So Jax is a, a writer, performer, an, an activist, um, an educator, and just how you can kind of fit all of that into one week and, and do them well is really interesting. So kind of really wanted to delve into how that how she makes that work uh, while still kind of being able to take care of herself and, and like manage the sort of when you have so many different balls in the air. Yeah, I mean, I'm really, I'm really pleased that uh, Jax could fit us in, and came and took the time to chat to us in the studio. I think I was realizing when Jax was speaking as well, and Jax talks a bit about this nervousness before becoming a f- performing poet, and it reminded me of the first time that I saw Jax perform. And Jax just blew me away and was supremely confident. And afterwards I had a bit of a chat to her and was just like, you're really cool, <laughs> essentially. I think so too because even um, sort of saying, asking Jax, like what's your kind of approach to writing and how did your writing career begin and that hesitation even today to say uh, call yourself a writer. I think a lot of people can relate to that hesitation to say I am an, an artist, I am a writer, whatever it might be. Um, so to kind of see the confident performer on one end, but then also see that, you know, everyone's human and that there's this kind of, there's still um, hesitation is kind of comforting for us all. Yeah, Jax is certainly a busy human and I'm glad you could fit us in and come and have a chat to us in the studio. Thanks for coming, Jax. No worries. Thanks for having me. So you clearly wear many hats with your work, uh, but I thought I'd start by asking how your career in writing began. My career in writing? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess I'm one of these writers who um, is reluctantly having a career out of it. I don't know. It's it's one of those mantles that sometimes you can feel a bit at odds, um, even though I use it in bios and stuff, but kind of publicly owning it. And I think for me that uncomfortableness is probably related to gender and, you know, taking up space and claiming space as a woman writer and as a queer writer and as a disabled writer. Um, so, yeah, I guess my career, my career in writing began... Uh, it mainly kind of started taking off when I started pushing myself to write more and do public speaking and do performance work as well when I moved to Melbourne about five years ago now. So I kind of always quietly wrote in my bedroom late at night, kind of after going and seeing a poetry gig, that kind of thing, um, and thought, oh, I don't want anyone to ever read my feelings. Um, <laughs> and then I started to think maybe I have interesting things to say, like 
Um, yeah, I didn't see many disabled people writing politically about being disabled and I didn't see many queer disabled people saying much at all. So, um, yeah, I, I, I write and I do a lot of my work because I feel like I have to. I feel compelled to do it. Um, yeah. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point that you made about kind of that fear of owning it and how that does come from the female and a queer experience. Mm. But then also it's so fascinating that you push through that kind of awkwardness and especially when you didn't see people in the space doing what you wanted to do, it could be even more kind of difficult to identify the pathway or whatever it is. So I'm interested to hear if there was someone, um, even a, a friend or some some kind of encourage or where you found the encouragement to do um, so. Yeah, so I guess when I was about 20, 21, um, I had another friend who was a bit older than me who had a disability as well. Um, so I'm a wheelchair user. And um, she was starting to think about disability from a social model of disability perspective. And so the social model says that a lot of the disadvantage we face as people with disabilities is not because of our bodies and minds being different. It's because we live in a world that's inaccessible in a myriad of ways and people's assumptions around disability and what that looks like and stereotypes and all those kind of things. So starting to see my body and my disability identity as not an individual issue, but as an issue that arises from an inaccessible and in um, inequitable society was a really, really important shift. Um, but still, like, I'd, and I'd have lots of conversations with her and I started reading a lot of disability rights texts, particularly from the US and the UK. But it really wasn't until I moved to Melbourne and I moved to Melbourne with a good friend of mine that I went to uni with, who's an amazing performance poet. And um, I used to go to some of her gigs that were happening locally in my small kind of country town and go, that's amazing, I could never do that. Um, and I remember when I landed in Melbourne, um, literally within the first 24 hours, we were like, let's hit the stage, like let's both do a gig. Wow. Um, and we went to the Dan O'Connell, which any queer woman person who's ever been to the Dan O'Connell will know um, it's just full of like stuffy old men that are really drunk and kind of want to heckle you. And so I did this like, that's a bit of a long story, but I did this poem that was like angsty and queer and like I was missing my ex-girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. And it was like this really raunchy kind of full on like lots of emotions, lots of feelings poem. I did this poem and I had this old guy come up to me afterwards and kind of, you know, grab me by the hand and and go, oh, you know, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you're feeling because I got a hip replacement. And he hadn't heard anything that I'd said. He'd just seen wheelchair and been like, yep, it's all going to be about, like, disability and I'm going to relate to this person on the basis of that. Um, so that realising that kind of I have some kind of strange freedom in that people are always going to position me in their minds as being solely defined by disability and their ideas about what that means. That sometimes I can say like the most outlandish, quirky, um, raunchy stuff and maybe a few people in that audience will hear it, but a lot of people will just be like, you know, they, they won't know how to comprehend that. So, yeah, my friend, I think, yeah, my, my friend with a disability and also my, my poet friend were kind of instrumental in saying let's let's kind of give these different things a go let's see what you have to say mm. um yeah. yeah and have giving yourself that freedom to ex experiment with it as well yeah yeah especially if, if the old men at the dan o'connell aren't listening you kind yeah, of really yeah, test yeah. out what's what um what feels right for you yeah to, to um perform well um i also want to ask you because of this juggle of all the different things you do as a speaker freelancer writer performer educator 
and how that kind of fits into a, a, poten- a potentially given week and and how you kind of juggle the juggle it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I used to have like an actual diary, like a you know handwritten diary kind of thing, um, but I have dyslexia and so my handwriting's really bad. And um, then I spilled coffee all over it and I realised that that wasn't a sustainable way to organise my life because I couldn't often read what I was meant to be or what I was meant to be doing. Um, so I, I gave my life over to Google Calendar, which is good in a way because it's very ordered and I can tell exactly where I've got to go when and even Google Maps where you're going and blah, blah, blah. But it's bad because Google like knows everything about my life and direct markets things to me. But, yeah, like like having some way, and at the moment it's that, of of being really ordered and kind of knowing what I've got to do on any given day and how to kind of slot that in has been really important. Um, and I feel really lucky to do all the work that I do and I feel really immensely lucky to keep getting the opportunities that I'm getting. But it, it is a kind of tension of all of it relies on me putting myself out there and putting but putting myself out there in a political um, context, you know, like um, it's making the personal political. But... Sometimes that is that is a bit of a challenge of the work that I do is that I'm inherently woven into it and mm. yeah. yeah yeah it kind of makes it hard to kind of put that divider between self and work mm. and um, it's reminded me of that um, it's almost like a self care expression that you need to put on your own life mask before you can put on anyone else's and yeah. I think as an advocate that would be potentially like very pertinent uh, that you need to look after yourself would that be yeah I mean. I have an issue. I don't know. I'm not really. I don't really have it all sorted out when it comes to self care. Um, and it's funny because I'm on a panel for like um, Melbourne Writers Festival on self care and activism. <laughs> and I was like, oh, did they put me on there because they saw a queer disabled person? She must like be good at self care or know some things about how to take care of herself or something. I mean, I'm grateful to be on there, but um, yeah, I, it caused me to reflect and think about how do I manage like all the competing things I'm doing in my life and and yeah am I good at self-care and what does self-care look like for me um and I think one of the things I'm going to take to that conversation and one of the things that I've been thinking about is activism whatever forms that takes in our lives can be really tiring but it can also be the fire that that keeps us going and that that forms who we are and that forms our view of the world and that, you know, sustains this kind of hope for change. Um, And so for me, self-care isn't always about checking out of that and kind of isolating myself from that and and kind of having a day at home in my pyjamas where I don't engage in that. Sometimes it's it's directly engaging with with that, Mm. Um, yeah, and finding meaning and purpose in that even when it feels like things aren't changing quick enough or, you know, that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think that could apply to a lot of writers that sometimes there's that that kind of overwhelm or feeling like you're not really sure where you're taking things but actually doing the work takes you there. But it's interesting, like how do you know when it is time to check out and when it is time to dive in further? I guess that's mm. it's a hard question mm. to answer. Yeah, and how do you know what is personal just for you or just for the people closest to you and what is – political for the world mm. like I, I I'm always kind of struggling with that or feeling the tension of that around yeah yeah what what does that look like what what belongs just to me and you know maybe my partner or my close friends and what what parts of myself am I ready to give out into the world um but that's interesting because I guess you're a slashy where you you know you're so many things um and for other people in, in a way that can kind of be overwhelming or it I'm curious to hear how you 
kind of go about making sure that each is sort of growing together or you've you know you've topped up the rider bucket and you're topping up the advocate bucket does it work like that for you or how do you maintain Um, them all no not really I mean I'm not kind of keeping an eye on going this one's going better than the other area I need to kind of look at that um yeah I, I I don't I did a um mentorship slash kind of thing for activists with disabilities at um a disability organization earlier this year <laughs> and one of the things I realized about it is I'm so bad at like marketing myself and having like a queer a queer clear vision queer queer vision of um what I yeah what what I look like and kind of putting myself out there in a particular kind of way um yeah and it makes me <laughs> very uncomfortable to kind of have a public brand or a public image of that because I kind of want to smash the system and that goes in the face of um yeah the, having a clear brand to earn money from like I'm, I'm glad that I am getting some of the paid opportunities but usually they invite me in to you know do a talk on diversity and they think that I'm gonna say what a great ally you are and I talk about how we need to change the system and the system's unjust and you know um so I yeah, I think sometimes there's that expectation, particularly for people with disabilities, um, that we kind of all sit around and lead sad, sorry lives and we're just grateful for, you know, a free gig where we get to say something inspirational. Um, and that's definitely not me. Mm. Like, um, that's definitely not what I want to say. So, so yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of, the, I guess, um, in terms of finding the work in different areas or um, wrestling with that, I'm a brand, but I'm also wanting to you know um do you say smash the system is that yes. yeah. <laughs> that yeah that that would be tricky i would imagine so is yeah there any... i don't think i'm a brand i think i resist yeah. being a brand but i i see other people branding mm. themselves and going this is this is the niche that i fit into you know i do diversity talks or something in this particular way um yeah and i've kind of looked at that and gone yeah yeah i want to be able to move around and change what i'm doing and saying and shift my thinking on things and yeah Yeah. have some of that freedom yeah yeah Yeah. it's kind of nice to know that as writers we don't actually have to be a walking brand (laughs) yeah we can be yeah but there there is that massive pressure like I went to an interesting thing today on uh writing my a um at Writers Victoria and they were talking about you know when you you write a book and you approach publishers or they approach you if you're lucky and they will decide where you fit in terms of, you know, um, for what, what the readership looks like and then they will decide what your brand is and, and they're the ones that decide that. They decide what your cover image of your book looks like. They decide how to market you. They decide what parts of your identity or your writing life to kind of highlight because of who that appeals to. And um, we were talking about, you know, like if you want to step outside of that and you want to write something completely different or you want to switch genres or switch age groups, it's so hard because they go, well, we've built this brand to this point based on you being in this particular kind of niche and that's who you appeal to. And, yeah, so, like, what is the relationship with commercialisation and writing and, yeah, how do we kind of have creativity still in that whole space when often control if you make it whatever that looks like will get taken off a writer and it'll be all about um you know the marketing team deciding 
what, how your book should look or how your Twitter feed should look and all that kind of stuff. Mm, so important to think about those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and quite early on, I think, in, in your career. So I, I guess that brings me to a question about whether you, what kind of advice you have for someone who's emerging and starting out either as um, a spoken word performer or advocate or writer, freelancer. Um, I would say, and I talk particularly to young people with disabilities because I don't think there's many people um, talking to young people uh, and young queer people as well and say just do it because you feel compelled to do it. Like do the things, write the things and say the things that you can't help but say. Don't say what you think people want you to say or what you've been taught to say. Don't worry about trying to be nice. Say the things that you know to be true, even if they're hard, even if sometimes they make you feel really vulnerable and like you've put something out of yourself. um, Have courage to say those things because they're the things that will fire you up. They're the things that will give you a sense of purpose. Um, And they're the things that maybe no one else is saying and the world needs to hear more of. Um, Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, I, I would say kind of – and try and read as much as you can, like particularly for people with disabilities. There's a whole community of us out there. There's a whole history of people that have been thinking about disability rights and disability identity um, that have really important, interesting things to say to you and with you and alongside you. Um, and so I think finding that community is is really, really important because often you can feel really isolated as a writer and particularly as a writer who's marginalised in some way. Um, And there is this whole romantic trope that, you know, we sit at home and and bang out a book and it's amazing, but often it it is really tiring and it is really isolating. So being able to connect in with other people um, and develop your ideas through their ideas and that kind of stuff is really important. Mm, Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jax. No worries. Thanks for having me. Madeline, thanks so much for guest hosting this episode. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any advice for emerging interviewers out there. I think that the best piece of advice would be to, to start interviewing. So whether that's to begin your own side project where it's an interview blog, uh, whether it's to sign up to a, a community radio station training program that touches on kind of interview skills, um, start doing. Uh, whether it's just kind of building a small collection and portfolio to then be able to pitch to different publications to then get uh, written profiles in, in print and online. Uh, yeah, the best kind of thing is to start. You heard that, folks. Start doing. From the Emerging Writers Festival, the Digital Writers Festival is back in 2017. Whether you're into podcasts or poetry, fanfic or specfic. If you're interested in the future of storytelling, this online first festival is for you, wherever you are. We'll be releasing content and streaming events through the DWF website. Log on and tune in to join the conversation. Our theme music is the magical Huntleys, Please, from their new EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. 
Thanks to Triple R Radio for giving us access to their studios. Community broadcasting is such an important space for emerging voices. And we're really grateful to be part of this community. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge the First Nations, first storytellers and traditional owners of this land. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Hey, don't let me down, hey.